Well, it's good to see you here this morning. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're having a, uh, a good weekend here so far. Uh, as Pastor Rich just mentioned, we are continuing on today in our series in the book of Acts called The Empowered Life. And if you were here last week, you'll know that Pastor Rich walked us through Acts chapter 3. And this is where we came across the first healing miracle in the book of Acts. And uh, I don't know about you, but I thought Pastor Rich did such a, an excellent job walking us through that text. Uh, but not only that, but also answering this question of, does God heal today? And there's a lot there, and, and, and we talk through some of those issues and some of those things. And, and I know for myself and the other pastors, we were deeply encouraged by how many of you came down for prayer after the service. And so if you missed last week's sermon, I want to encourage you to go onto our website and to listen or to, to watch and get caught up. Uh, but as he said, we are moving on today into chapter 4. And the main work of the Spirit we want to look at this morning is the theme of prayer. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but when, uh, for me, when uh, over the last few, uh, or up until the last few years or so, my attitude and my perception about prayer has been one uh, that has been by and large negative. And, and what I mean by that is, is that prayer was consistently this, this area of my life where I felt like a big failure. I always had this sense of, of guilt and embarrassment about my lack of time spent in prayer. But, but not only that, but also even my enjoyment of it. And yet the thing that was kind of weird and kind of ironic is that I was really drawn towards people who I perceived really uh, enjoyed and excelled in their prayer lives. And so even though I felt like such a failure, I, I couldn't help but, but read books on prayer and, and listen to sermons on prayer. And, and, and if I was in conversation with someone and they would mention, oh, you know, I was out praying or da-da-da-da-da, something like that, I, I would just begin to ask them a lot of questions, things like, well, well what did you do? And, and where did you go? And, and how long did you pray, etc.? And I just had this immense hunger to know more about it. And yet, in hindsight, I, I think that ultimately I was looking for some sort of uh, shortcut or some sort of mysterious key to excelling in my prayer life. Something that if only I could figure it out or learn it uh, or do it uh, better, then I would finally uh, be able to move forward in this area of my life. Well, like I alluded to, uh, at some point a couple years ago, things uh, really began to change for me. And uh, what happened is some of those feelings of guilt and embarrassment begin to leave. And I begin to realize that prayer isn't this Christian duty that I have to perform in order to please God. But rather, it's a privilege that I have as a child of God. And I just really begin to see that, that ultimately prayer is about relationship. It's about spending time with and enjoying my Father. It's about crying out to him with my, my needs and my fears. And I really think one of the big catalysts, uh, one of the things that uh, drove me to pray more was I, I, I began to realize just how true Jesus' words are when, when he said this, apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, I began to realize that I can't be an effective husband. I can't be an effective father or, or friend or, or pastor. I can't do any of the things that the Lord has called me to do in my own strength. And ultimately, I can't do any of these things without the power and the presence of the Lord. You see, there's nothing that will humble you quicker and cause you to be desperate for the Lord more than trying to minister in your own strength. 
than trying to be a patient father or a loving husband in your own strength. And so it was really from this place of desperation that I I began to press into the Lord in prayer. And one of the things I realized is that far from being a duty, that far from being a have to or a performance, prayer is an invitation. It's an invitation into the presence of God. It's an invitation into deeper fellowship and relationship with Him. And one of the other big things that I I think began to change around this time period is I think in a new way I finally became aware of the Holy Spirit. You see, Francis Chan has written a book about the Spirit called The Forgotten God. And maybe you think, well, that sounds a little extreme. I mean, have we really forgotten about the Holy Spirit? Well, I don't know about you, but I think that at some level that was true in my own life. And yet, as I started to become aware of the Spirit, as I began to experience His presence, my perception and my experience of prayer began to change. And so I don't know where you're at in your prayer journey this morning. Maybe you can relate to some of the things that I just shared. But but either way, my hope is, is that all of us will leave here today encouraged and leave here inspired in this area of prayer as we see it described in the book of Acts. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 4. Uh, if, you don't, if you didn't bring a Bible, you can use one of our pew Bibles. And it's found on page 911 at the bottom of the page in our pew Bible. But before we uh, begin to dive in, let me open us up with a word of prayer. Father, we do start this morning by acknowledging our need and our desperation for you. Lord, we are so dependent on you. Every breath we take is a gift from you, and we are dependent on you for it. And so, Lord, I just ask that that through the power of the Spirit, you would illuminate your scriptures for us this morning. Lord, that you would change each of us in here, and that we would leave differently than when we came in. We would leave more with, with more of you, more of your presence and your power in our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's uh, reorient ourselves to where we are at in the story. And so last week, we saw that uh, Peter and John, at the beginning of of chapter 3, that they were on their way to the temple to go pray. And as they were going, they encountered a crippled man who was begging for money. And as we saw last week, uh, instead of giving him money, Peter and John heal him in the name of Jesus. Well, this healing, this miracle causes quite a commotion that that a crowd begins to form around Peter and John. And so Peter takes that opportunity to present the gospel to the crowd. It's the same thing that he did in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit came at the day of Pentecost. And so picking it up in verse 1 of chapter 4, we read this. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Okay, so the religious leaders, they take notice of what's going on. They see a crowd begin to form. And they become annoyed at Peter and John that they're, that they're out there talking about Jesus. And so they, they take them and they throw them into prison overnight. And so this is the first instance of persecution towards the disciples since Jesus' ascension. 
And then Luke tells us there in verse 4 that many people responded to Peter's preaching of the gospel. And now the number of men who believed in Jesus was about 5,000. Now there's some debate as to whether or not Luke is telling us that that this is an additional 5,000 to the the 3,000 that we saw in Acts 2. Or if he's now just saying this is now the total number of new believers. I'm not sure. Again, there's some debate about it. But but either way, the point is, is that a lot of new people have become Christians in a short amount of time. And basically what has happened is the Lord has, uh, through these two amazing miracles, through the Spirit coming in Acts 2 and through the healing of this man in Acts 3, He has drawn large crowds together and has given Peter an opportunity to share the gospel. And large numbers of people have responded. And so verse 5. The next day, the rulers and the elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power and by what name did you do this? And so the next morning, they pull Peter and John out of prison, and they begin to question them. They want to know by what power, by, by what authority, and in whose name have they done this miracle. And I think it's interesting that they recognize that Peter and John have, have exercised some power. They, they've, they've exercised some authority outside of themselves. Now the other thing that I think is interesting to note here is that if you look at this list of names of people, this is some of the exact people who questioned Jesus and had him put to death. And so by all accounts, Peter and John should have been shaking in their boots. And so let's see how they respond. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. And so, wow, here we're told in verse 8 that, that Peter, in this moment of questioning, is filled with the Holy Spirit. Which is interesting because he was also filled with the Spirit back in Acts 2. And so I think Luke is trying to communicate something to us. And then I just love the way that Peter responds here. He's, he's basically like, guys, are you serious? Like, are we in trouble and, and on trial right now because we have helped and done a good deed to this poor crippled man? You see, so much of winning a debate is all about how you frame the question and the argument. And I think Peter has just done it brilliantly here. Like, seriously? Like, oh, like you threw us in prison because we helped a crippled man? And so Peter's like, all right, well, I'll tell you. If you want to know by what power, by, by whose name we have done this deed, then I'll tell you. And just with incredible boldness, he begins to say that the man was healed by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you guys killed. And so not only does he say that, that, that this was done uh, in Jesus' name, but then he also points the finger and he's like, and yeah, you're the guys who killed him. 
And then he references back to the Old Testament statement in Psalm 118 about the builders rejecting the cornerstone. And then he makes the connection that they are the ones that that passage was referring to. And then again, just very boldly, he tells them just straight up, look, salvation only comes through this name, through Jesus Christ. And so again, this is crazy. I mean, can you even believe that this is the same guy who just a couple months previous to this denied that he even knew the Lord when he was asked? And yet here he is in just just incredible boldness proclaiming uh, that he knows Jesus and proclaiming the gospel. I mean, I don't know. It's almost like he's a different person. It's almost like something has happened to him. Oh, wait, something did happen to him. He received the Spirit in Acts 2. He is a different person. And so let's see how the, the, the authorities respond. Verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. And so obviously here they recognize that Peter is acting very bold. It says that they perceived that they were uneducated common men and they were astonished. In other words, they couldn't believe how bold and how articulate Peter was with the scriptures. And then you just got to love that next line. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, but, but I want that set of me. You know, I don't know about this guy, but, but you know, one thing I do know is it looks like he's been with Jesus. He knows Jesus. He spends time with Jesus, and it's rubbed off on him. And also, I, I love that Luke includes this little detail there, uh, that last statement we read. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. You see, when God shows up, when God displays his power, he shuts the mouth of any opposition. I mean, think about this. There is no doubt that these leaders, these religious men, that they were familiar with this crippled man. It said back in chapter 3 that he was at the temple every day begging. And so here are these men who have dedicated their lives to being at the temple. There's no doubt that they probably saw him and walked by him dozens, if not hundreds of times. And yet, during all of those times, they never once saw him standing They never once saw him walking. And yet here it tells us, Luke tells us that they saw him standing by Peter and John. And therefore they had nothing to say in opposition. And so what do they do here? Let's keep going. Verse 15. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no farther among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And so they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. And so what happens is, is they kick Peter and John out of the room. They begin to discuss among themselves. They, they, they acknowledge there's no way that we can deny that a notable miracle has just been done. And we realize that all of Jerusalem has now realized this. And so we need to do something. 
We need to nip this in the bud. And so their big plan, as they discuss and huddle together, is that, well, let's just threaten them. Let's just tell them not to, to talk or to teach about the name of Jesus anymore. And so they, they call them back in, and then look how they respond in verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had farther threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And so Peter and John yet again respond with unusual boldness and power. And they tell the religious leaders, again, the very men who killed Jesus, they tell them this. No, no, we're not going to do that. No, I, I know you can, you can threaten us and warn us and tell us that, but, but no, we're going to keep talking about Jesus. You see, we've seen and heard too much. We put our hands in his nail-pierced hands and in his side. And we've seen him raised from the dead. I mean, he cooked us uh, fish on a beach after he ascended. No, we can't stop talking about what we have seen and heard. So you just need to figure out what you want to do, but we're not going to stop. And so it says that they threatened them some more and then they let them go because they could find no way to punish them because everyone was praising God for what happened. And so Peter and John get released. And what do they do? Where do they go and what do they do? Well, let's keep reading verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father, David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the word of God. With boldness. And so Peter and John get released from jail. They immediately go straight to their friends. They go to the early church. And they begin to tell them of all that had just taken place. And what the religious leaders had told them. And then we're told there that immediately they begin to pray together. And this prayer is just so amazing when you slow down and look at it. I mean, they start off by acknowledgement that, that the Father has all authority. That He, in fact, is the Lord of all. He has all control, all power. They continue by praising God for His role as Creator. And then they go on to pray the Scriptures. And here again, they're reaching back into the Old Testament text 
this time in Psalm 2. And they connected to uh, Jesus, the Messiah. And they also connected to the people who were responsible for his death. And yet all along they acknowledged that, that even in spite of all of that, that it was all done through God's sovereign will and his plan. That there is nothing outside of his sovereign will and plan. And then again, it's interesting what they say in verse 29. Now they transition into to petitioning the Lord. After acknowledging how big and how sovereign God is, they continue to pray this. And I, I like how the NIV translates verse 29 and 30. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and to perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I think if I was in their shoes, I would have prayed something a little bit differently. I think I would have prayed, now, Lord, consider their threats and wipe them off the face of the earth. <laughs> Lord, consider their threats and cause lightning to fall down and strike them. Or if I was feeling particularly uh, gracious, I would have said, now, Lord, consider their threats and change their hearts. Cause them to change their minds. But, but they don't do that. They don't even pray and ask God to deliver them from persecution. They just say, Lord, consider their threats. And in light of that, help us to continue to speak with boldness your word in spite of these threats. And not only that, they ask the Lord to stretch out his hand to heal and to perform signs and wonders. You see, they weren't afraid to ask God to display his power. They weren't ashamed by that. You see, they didn't say things like, well, you know, God doesn't do that anymore. We shouldn't ask for things like that. No, they prayed with boldness and with faith, believing that the Lord would come through. And so the Holy Spirit so evidently loved their prayer. And in fact, was the one I believe inspiring their prayer that it says that the place where they were was literally shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And so right here in the beginning of Acts, in Acts chapter 3, And at the end of Acts 4, we have two new things happen. First, we see that the early church has their first healing miracle. But not only that, we also see that it's the first time that they encounter persecution. And the thing that struck me as I I studied this passage this week is that it began with Peter and John on their way to go pray. They were literally on their way to the temple to pray when they encountered this man and, and saw him healed. But not only that, it ends with them having a spontaneous prayer meeting. And so for the rest of our time this morning, I want to look at and answer a couple questions in relation to the topic of prayer in the book of Acts and in the life of the early church. And the first question I want to look at is this. Was prayer an important part of the early church? I mean, was prayer critical to everything that they did? Well, that may sound dumb or like an obvious question. Of course, prayer was important. Of course, it was critical. But what I didn't realize until this week was just how important and central prayer was to them. Just how how much it was behind everything that they saw accomplished in the book of Acts. And so basically what I did is I took some time this week and just starting in Acts chapter one, I went through the entire book and I took note of every time you see Luke describe uh, them going to pray or them actually praying. And after just writing again, every time I saw that mentioned, I stood back and I was just blown away by what I saw. 
And so let me just briefly run through this. In chapter 1, in verse 14, right after Jesus ascended, but before the Spirit came, it says this, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. A few verses later, in in verse 24, it says, They prayed and asked the Lord to help them pick Judas' replacement among the twelve. In chapter 2, we read about the Spirit coming and them all being together. And even though it doesn't explicitly say they were praying when the Spirit came, I think because of what Acts 1.14 said uh, about them devoting themselves to prayer during this time, that you can make a strong case that most likely they were praying when the Spirit filled them. And then as I've already pointed out in Acts 3, Peter and John were on their way to go pray. Uh, Obviously, we just saw at the end of Acts 4 that that they had a spontaneous prayer meeting. In Acts 6, they prayed to commission the seven men who were chosen to serve the widows. In Acts 7, Stephen, as he lay dying, looked up to heaven and prayed as he's being stoned to death. In Acts 8, Peter and John pray for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, Later on, it says that Peter uh, has a... He interacts about prayer with Simon the magician. In Acts 9, we see Paul or Saul pray at his conversion. Then later on, we see the Lord speak to Ananias in a vision, uh, informing him to go meet Saul. Later on in Acts 9, Peter prays and sees a dead woman raised named Dorcas. In Acts 10, we're told about a Gentile named Cornelius who prayed continually to God. And then a few verses later, we read that Peter is up on the roof spending some time in prayer. And the Lord speaks to him through a vision and tells him that the gospel is going to go to all the nations, to the Gentiles. And as he's praying, then some men from Cornelius show up and they say, we're going to take you to go preach the gospel to these men. And then in Acts 12, we're told that the early church was praying for Peter to be released from jail. In Acts 13, we see the church in Antioch worshiping and fasting and the Holy Spirit uh, at that moment the Holy Spirit speaks to them and tells them to set aside Paul and Barnabas for special missionary work and then it says that the church laid hands on them and prayed for them then in Acts 14 we see Paul and Barnabas lay their hands on and pray for some new men they just appointed as elders then if we look at Acts 16 and this one really blew me away first we see the Spirit directing and telling Paul and Silas where and uh, they should and shouldn't go and then Paul sees this vision from this guy from Macedonia begging him to come share the gospel in their region and so in obedience to that Paul and Silas head to Macedonia and they come to the city of Philippi and we're told there in Acts 16 that they were on they were trying to find a place to go pray. So they went to this river where they meet this lady named Lydia. They share the gospel. She comes to Christ. Then in the next paragraph, it talks about, again, they were looking for a place to pray. They meet this demon uh, possessed slave girl. Uh, She starts to annoy Paul. And so he casts the demon out of her. And then their owners get angry and they throw Paul and Silas in jail. And then while in jail, we're told that Paul and Silas are singing and praying at midnight. Then all of a sudden, the spirit causes the doors to blow off and an earthquake. And then the guy's about to kill himself, the prison guard. And they're like, no, don't do that. We're all still here. And he's like, well, what do I have to do to be saved? And so Paul leads him to the Lord. And then he baptizes him and his whole family. And it's just crazy. But again, the thing that struck me this week is that in all three of those cases, in Acts 16, prayer was involved. Twice they were on their way to go pray, and the last time they were praying uh, while in jail. And so literally, you could say that the church in Philippi was birthed out of Paul and Silas' prayer lives. It was birthed out of their devotion to prayer. And I'm starting to run out of time, and I'm starting to run out of breath. And so let me just (laughs) summarize for us the rest of the book. 
We see prayer mentioned in Acts 18, Acts 19, Acts 20, Acts 21, 22. And then finally, even in the last chapter, Acts 28, we see even there, Paul lays his hands on and sees a man healed of fever and dysentery. And so literally from start to finish, we see that prayer was at the forefront of the early church. We see them pray individually like Peter on the roof in Acts 10. We see them pray corporately like in Acts 4 and other places. We see that they had scheduled times for prayer. They would go to the temple regularly. But we also see that they prayed spontaneously as things came up. And one of the things we see over and over again is that they prayed bold prayers. That when they prayed, they, they actually expected God to show up and to respond. And so again, the thing that just blew me away this week as I began to just study prayer in the book of Acts was just how crucial and important it was in the life of the early church. And just how, how much of everything that they did flowed from this place of prayer. And so if we go back to this question, was prayer an, an important part of the early church? I think the answer is absolutely yes. And so if that's true, let's answer one last question here this morning. And that is this. What did the Spirit do in response to the early church's prayers? Well, one of the things you'll see if you go back through all of those passages that I rambled off as fast as I could, is that the Holy Spirit was absolutely a critical part of their prayers. If we even just go back to Acts 4, we see that, that basically they had two requests. First, they asked the Lord to help them to continue to speak His word with boldness, which we see that the Lord answers right away. Because at the end of verse 31 in chapter 4, it says, And they all continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And this was done as the Spirit filled them, as it says there. And so the Lord answers that request right away. Now the second thing they asked for in prayer was that the Lord would stretch out His hand to heal and to perform signs and wonders in Jesus' name. And so did the Lord answer that second request? Well, if you were here last week, Pastor Rich mentioned that that we see about 14 or so uh, direct healings mentioned in the book of Acts. But not only that, let me read you this section out of Acts 5, which is just one of these amazing passages that we just skim over and and don't really think about. But, But starting in Acts 5, verse 12, it says this. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. I mean, you, the Gospels do this too about Jesus' ministry. You just get these crazy one or two sentence passages where it's like, and basically the whole town came out and Jesus laid hands and healed them all. And it's just he's summarizing, but, but so we might read that there were only 14 direct healings in Acts, but here in this passage we see that this was so much more than that. That this was... A, a, just a regular part of the early church. They healed them all. And so, what did the Spirit do in response to their prayers? Well, clearly, according to Acts, He answered their prayers, and He filled and empowered the believers to speak the Word of God boldly 
and he used them to heal and to perform signs and wonders. In other words, he did the very things that they asked for. And when we step back and we look at the the book of Acts as a whole and we look at the other epistles, one of the things we see again uh, is that the Holy Spirit is the one who inspires our prayers. It says in Romans 8 that he intercedes for us. He's praying for us. We also see in other places that he empowers our prayers and and he empowers us through our prayers. He is the one who who speaks to us when we pray. When we hear a voice, it's the, the voice of the Spirit. He guides us. He directs us. And that's why the Apostle Paul, at the end of the book of Ephesians, he told the believers there to pray in the Spirit at all times and on all occasions. You see, the point is this. God uses us when we make prayer a priority in our lives. He does this when we as individual Christians get alone and spend time with him. And he does it when we come together as a community, as a church, and spend time in prayer. You see, the reality is this. A praying church is an empowered church. Let me say that again. A praying church is an empowered church. However, unfortunately, the reverse is also true. A non-praying church is a non-empowered church. And if you as an individual believer, and if we as a local body here in in Worthington, Ohio, in Columbus, Ohio, if we want to be empowered people, then we must raise the prayer temperature in our lives. And again, as I said in the beginning of this message, this isn't a legalistic have to, but rather this is an invitation into something greater. D.A. Carson, in his book on prayer, he, he starts out the beginning of the book this way. It's the very first uh, paragraph. He says this. I doubt if there is any Christian who has not sometimes found it difficult to pray. In itself, this is neither surprising nor depressing. It is not surprising because we are still pilgrims with many lessons to learn. It is not depressing because struggling with such matters is part of the way that we learn. What is, though, both surprising and depressing is the sheer prayerlessness that characterizes so much of the Western church. It is surprising because it is out of step with the Bible that portrays what Christian living should be. And it's depressing because it frequently coexists with abounding Christian activity that somehow seems hollow, frivolous and superficial. You see, the truth is this. You and I can plan all the Christian programs and activities that we want. We can conduct Bible studies and and pass out gospel tracts and serve the poor. But if we don't make prayer a priority, we are not going to see God move in our lives and in the life of our church in spirit and in power. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to just play church. I don't want to just go through the motions and buy my time until I die or the Lord returns. No, I want myself and I want our church to be used by God to push back darkness, to extend the kingdom in our city and in our world. I want to see people saved and healed and baptized. I want to see people who are affected by demons set free. I want to see the poor have their bodies along with their souls fed. I want to see justice fought for and administered through us. And yet the truth is, You and I want, if we want to see those things in our church and in our lives, then what the book of Acts and what the early church shows us is that there are no shortcuts to those. Those things only happen when we pray. 
And so as we close here, I just want to leave us with a, a few application points. First, I want to address you life groups and you life group leaders. Look, if we want to experience the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our groups, which I hope that you want that, then we are going to have to make sure we create more consistent time and space for prayer in our weekly gatherings. You see, prayer can't just be an afterthought for us. It can't be this thing that we planned on doing but but ran out of time for. And look, I'm not just saying that to you. I'm saying that to myself as well. I'm, I'm just as guilty of doing this in my own life group. But again, if we want to experience the Lord and see life's changed, then we have to pray. And so that's the first application towards life groups. Secondly, though, I want to really challenge you families out there. And, and specifically, I want to challenge you dads to make a commitment and a habit of regularly praying with and for your kids, and your spouse. I don't know if you dads out there realize this, but you set the pace and you set the tone for your family's spiritual life. And not only that, but I also believe that you carry with you a unique spiritual authority over your family and over your household. And therefore, you need to pray with and for your families. And so let's just get real practical here. Do you have little kids who have nightmares? Then as their dad, you need to crawl in bed with them. You need to lay hands on them and you need to pray over them. Do you have teenagers who are struggling, who are getting into trouble, who seem to be drifting from the Lord? Then as your dad, as their dad, you need to pray prayers of blessing and protection over them. And you need to do it with them. And if they won't let you do it with them or if they're not around, then you need to tell them, hey, son. I've been praying for you. Hey, son, just so you know, I was up early this morning begging God to protect you, begging God to draw you near to him. You see, I think when we do that, when we communicate to our kids that this isn't a game, that that we really believe that, that there's a God and that he answers our prayers and that we need him, it's powerful in our family's lives. So again, I just want to encourage and challenge all of you families, and specifically you dads and husbands, commit right now to pray with and for your families. Lastly, though, I want to challenge each of us individually in our own prayer lives. When we look at the early church, and definitely when we look at the life of Jesus, we see the importance and even the connection between our effectiveness in the kingdom and our individual prayer lives. I was spending some time in prayer with the Lord this week, and, and he once again brought this, this familiar passage to my mind out of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching on prayer here, and in Matthew 6, 6, he says this, But when you pray, go to your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And of course, this is a very familiar verse, one that we've no doubt read many, many times. And yet what the Lord I felt like highlighted to me this week was those last few words. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. You see, there's a reward for each one of us from the father when we get alone and spend time with him in prayer. And I don't know all of what Jesus had in mind here when he spoke of of a reward. But I can't help but think that part of the reward is us experiencing the spirit's presence and receiving his power. And so again, I don't know where you are at in your prayer journey this morning, but I just want to challenge each of you 
and encourage you to, to start out by just adding 10 minutes a day to wherever you're at. And so if you say, well, I only pray on average about 10 minutes a day right now, then, then my challenge is that you would add 10 minutes to that and start praying 20 minutes. If you've been following the Lord for a while and you're like, well, actually, I spend almost an hour in prayer a day, then, then again, I just want to challenge you. Just, just think about adding 10 minutes to that. If you say, well, you know, Nick, I hate to admit this, but I pretty much don't pray most days. I, if I had to average it out, it's probably zero. Well, again, that's okay. I, I, let's just start. Start today. Just pray today 10 minutes. And then wake up tomorrow and pray another 10 minutes. And then pray 10 minutes on Tuesday and Wednesday. And maybe you're thinking, why does it always have to be a time thing? Why are we always being asked to pray more or longer? Well, but that, That's because how, that's how relationships work. And as I said in the beginning, prayer is ultimately about relationship. You and I will only develop intimacy and friendship with the Lord as we spend time with Him. And so again, I just want to challenge you and challenge us as a church to do this and to believe that God is going to change our lives and to change our church as we each uh, just commit to this and spend more time in His presence. One last thing here before I pray. Have you ever thought about what it, ta- uh, what it means when it says in 1 Thessalonians 5 to not quench the Spirit? Uh, there's no doubt that it's referring to maybe a, a few different things, but, but I came across this week from a British pastor and theologian, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Here's what he said. He said, the primary way that we quench the Spirit is when we don't pray when He prompts us to. And so when the Spirit brings to your mind, when you're just going throughout your day and, and you just have that thought like, oh, I wonder how so-and-so is, or oh, I should pray for so-and-so in my life group. When you don't stop right there and then pray for them, what he's saying is that you quench the Spirit. And so in light of that, I think it could also be referring to the fact when we know, when the Spirit prompts you and I to, that, that we're not doing okay, that we need someone to come alongside of us and pray for us. When He prompts you to do that and you don't follow through, you don't ask for help, you don't say, hey man, I'm having a rough day, will you pray for me? I believe that too quenches the Spirit. And so in light of that, if while we're singing today at the close of the service here, if you feel the Spirit prompting you to come down and receive prayer, it could be for physical healing or, or emotional healing. Or, or it could just be as simple as, you know what, I just, I'm just feeling really dry right now in my spiritual life. Would you pray that, that the Spirit would ignite a fire in me? And so again, if the Spirit prompts you to do that, I just want to invite you to do that at the close of the service. But for now, let me close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for this amazing story out of the book of Acts. Lord, thank you that prayer is a privilege. Lord, prayer is not this performance, this way that we earn your approval or your love, Lord, but it's a way that we interact with you in relationship. Lord, it's a way that we get to experience your presence and your power. And so, Lord, I just pray for all of us as a body, God, that, that you would take each of us deeper in this, in our lives and in our church. God, that like what was said of, of, of Peter and John, that, that it was obvious that these men had been with Jesus, that that would be true of us as well. That we would be so caught up in, in, in spending time with Jesus that, that it would be noticeable to others. And so, Holy Spirit, I just pray that you come, you, you cement these things in our hearts, that you help us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.